Welcome to the Pastor's Bible Class from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, De Pere, Missouri, to all who are listening on KFUO. As we approach the Word of God today, let us begin with a word of prayer. Almighty God, merciful Father, since you have wakened from death the shepherd of your sheep, as we study your Word today, grant us your Holy Spirit, so that when we hear the voice of our Good Shepherd, we might know him who calls us by name and follow him where he leads us through the difficulties and dangers of this life, through green pastures beside the still waters, to the feast that never ends, to life, life lived abundantly, life now and forever. We pray, bless our study today, and continue to fill us with your Easter joy, even in these difficult times throughout the world. We pray for healing for all who are impacted by the virus, and for all on the front lines doing battle with us, and for your church, that we might serve our neighbors and faithfully carry out our mission. We pray these and all things through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. The lessons that we're going to look at today are the lessons appointed for the fourth Sunday of Easter, designated as Good Shepherd Sunday. During the days between Easter and Pentecost, we don't have an Old Testament lesson as such, but a first lesson from the book of the Acts of the Apostles. This is actually Luke, volume 2. In the first account, he, he told the story of the life of Jesus, his suffering, death, and resurrection. But now, in the second volume, perhaps more appropriately named, The Continuing Acts of Jesus, after his resurrection. It explains the impact of Easter on the earliest Christians, the formation of the church, and it's an important message for us, the church today. What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be Christians? What does it mean for us to be Easter people? This first lesson comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, and while you're looking that up, let me give you a little bit of background. The text comes right after the account of Pentecost, so it's chronologically out of place for us this morning, but it's a picture of the first Christian congregation of Jerusalem. Remember that as the day of Pentecost began, there, there were a group of 11 apostles, there were 120 disciples. And then on Pentecost, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, there were more than 3,000 converts. The growth of the church exploded, but not just in numbers. Also by the power of the Holy Spirit, they grew in their faith. And they grew in charity. They grew in, in good works and the way they lived out in the community. So what did the church look like? How did those Christians live? What does it have to teach the church today? A question that's often asked is, is this descriptive of the church, Jerusalem congregation, the church at those days, or is it prescriptive? Is this the will of the Lord for the whole church for all times? Is this how the Lord wants his church to be today? And so we look at the passage beginning in verse 42. They devoted themselves, it begins. There was a commitment, an involvement. These people were engaged in, in what was happening within the church. And so they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. We recall that in Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus told his disciples in the Great Commission, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The apostles were the teachers of the new church. Their teaching was Christ's teaching. It's what he had taught them. Many of these new converts had never seen Jesus or heard him teach, but the apostles were witnesses of the things and so they, they shared with the new church what they had seen, what they heard. And it's possible that they may have, have a, had a common set of instructions that they regularly passed on to the new converts, a body of tradition which could be called the teaching of the apostles. 
This teaching is preserved for us in the New Testament. And so this church was devoted to learning, to knowing, believing, and living the Word of Jesus, the Word of God. They also devoted themselves to the fellowship, the koinonia. This word is often translated fellowship, but it can also mean communion, a participation. The root word has to do with sharing. They shared a common faith. They shared their devotion to the apostles' teaching. They shared their joys and their sorrows. They shared their needs and their blessings. They shared as they gave alms and cared for the sick and the poor and the widows and the orphans. There was a communal life within the church, a fellowship which is described in the, the next verses, but simply say they were devoted to the Lord Jesus and they were devoted to one another. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. And while this phrase can be used of sharing a common meal together, we know that the early Christians also had what they called agape meals, love feasts, in which it was the original potluck. People brought what they had and shared with one another around the table. It was a time of fellowship, but also a time that, that they interacted with one another. It's likely, however, that in this case, St. Luke is talking about celebrating Holy Communion. Luke used the same word in, in uh, the Gospel, chapter 21, verse 19, where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples. He also used it in Luke 24, um, the account of the Emmaus disciples, as they met this stranger on the road and he opened to them the, the scriptures, they invited him to have supper with them, and then he took the bread and he blessed it and broke it, and in that instant, those disciples recognized that it was Jesus, and he disappeared. And so Luke says that this new church was devoted to word and the sacrament, breaking of bread, we might also add they were devoted to holy baptism since that's what Jesus had commanded them to do in the Great Commission. They devoted themselves to the prayers. And here the Greek word is plural. So it's likely a reference to daily prayers within the temple. As you know, Jewish men had hours of prayer. They went to the temple several times a day to pray. And so the church continued to worship in the temple and also in private homes. If you skip down to verse 46, it says that every day they gathered in the temple and in private homes. It's almost as if they retired from all other activities and they became full-time Christians. We know that this was a problem already in the church at Thessalonica where St. Paul had to instruct the Christians not to retire but to be engaged within their community. The point of all of this is to say that their way of living was a constant witness to the people of community of Jerusalem. They were in the temple, they were in the homes, they were out in the community, they were the people of God, they were Easter people. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, verse 43 says. When the people of Jerusalem heard, when they saw the miracles, they were filled with awe, or you might translate it fear, or a deep reverence. But their neighbors must have sensed that God was present among these Christian people. And this awe helped to spread the gospel. It protected the new church from opposition and persecution, because who could say a word against the wonderful things that they were hearing and doing? And so the church was able to enjoy a peaceful time of growth for a, a season before the persecution actually began. Verses 44 and 45 say that all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It's interesting. They were together. 
You may remember that on the day of Pentecost, there were people from all over the world, all different races of people, speaking all kinds of different languages, but they had a common cause. They had a common mission. They had a common spirit working within them. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17. On the night before he died in the upper room, he prayed to his Father that this new church may be one. And that's the way it was in, in those days. They were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Some have claimed this almost sounds like communism within the early church, but not really. They still held private property. If you read chapter 4, for example, there were still poor people and rich people who were selling some of their possessions and distributing. The point is that wealth didn't separate them from one another. They practiced generosity. They must have recognized that everything they had was a gift from God to be used, to be managed for God's saving purposes. That's our definition of Christian stewardship. God is the giver of all. God is the owner of all. And we are simply managers of everything that he has given to us. And we are to use those things for his purposes. The point is they shared not just with one another, but they, they shared with everyone as anyone had need. Verses 46 to 47 says, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so they shared the apostles' teaching. They all believed the same thing. They shared in worship, in the temple, and in their homes. They shared as they ate meals together. They shared their possessions and showed all kinds of charity. Sharing was the hallmark of the first Christian community. The sharing was set on fire by the Holy Spirit in the absolute confidence that Jesus had risen from the dead. Easter people share, and it's this sharing that set them apart from the prevailing culture of their day. It's no wonder they found favor with all the people. How could they not? Everyone had to recognize that something special was happening among the Christians. The way they lived was consistent with what they claimed to believe. There was, there was joy, there was excitement, there was anticipation, there was all this love. And that's pretty attractive when Christians live that way. And so the Lord added to their number. Clearly it wasn't their doing. The Lord was working through them, but it was the Lord who added to their number every day those who were being saved. This risen Savior continued his works, his saving acts through his church. It was his mission to save the world. So again, we might ask, is this descriptive? Is it simply describing how that church was in those days? Or is this text prescriptive? Is this the way the Lord of the church intends for his church to always be? The way he wants every Christian congregation to be? To have the same devotion to the word and worship and sacraments, to have the same unselfish charity toward those in need? What if we live like that? All of us together. If we truly lived what we confess to believe, if we shared all with everyone who had a need, what if we were good neighbors, willing to help anyone. What would the church look like today? What kind of impression would we make on our community, on the world around us? And how would the Lord add to our numbers every day those who are being saved? 
if we were truly Easter people. The epistle for this Sunday is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 through 25. During these Sundays after Easter, our epistle lessons all lead us through 1 Peter. St. Peter's words offer hope, real hope, because of Jesus' resurrection to Christian people who are struggling. This letter is an important message from one who was as close to Jesus as any other human being on earth. Luther wrote about its importance. He said, in a word, St. John's Gospel and his epistles, St. Paul's epistles, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and St. Peter's first epistle are the books that show you Christ and teach you all that's necessary for the salvatory for you to know, even if you were never to see or know any other book or doctrine. St. Peter wrote these words around 61, 62 AD, within 30 years of our Lord's death and resurrection. He wrote to the exiles of the diaspora. Christian were scattered throughout, the, throughout Asia Minor in those days. And he called them resident aliens. They were living in the world, but were really already residents of heaven. These folks were facing discrimination, false accusations from their fellow citizens, from relatives, friends, neighbors. They didn't know who was coming at them. And it incited persecution from religious and public officials. You might say it was a tough time to be a Christian. But Peter reminded them that they were born again through holy baptism, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for them, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. He's telling them, remember, you are Easter people. So what does it mean to be a Christian in times like those? It's a good lesson for us today. A reminder, first of all, that discipleship means that we live under the cross. There will be suffering. But St. Peter tells us that this suffering happens so that the genuineness of our faith may be tested. There is a good purpose within it for all of us. Being a Christian means putting away the old life with malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. We have the same kind of struggles today. Being a Christian in tough times means living like newborn babes, longing for pure spiritual milk, being hungry, thirsty for God's pure word. Being a Christian in tough times is a life of repentance. It's a life that is built on Jesus Christ, who is the chief cornerstone. And so, Peter says, Christians are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people. We, as Christians, have a mission. We are royal priests. We are put on this earth to serve God and to serve our neighbor. So how should we Christians live? We're to live such holy lives. We're to do such good works that despite what people are saying about us, despite what people are doing to us, everyone will be able to see and be astonished by what they see and God willing be converted to Christianity to become Christians along with us. Our text comes from a, a section in, beginning in chapter 2, verse 11, continuing through chapter 3, verse 7, where Peter lays out a, a table of duties. It's kind of a guide to practical Christianity. And a summary of it might be in the first verses, verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2, where he says, Keep your conduct honorable, so that unbelievers may see your good deeds and glorify God. 
And then verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He goes right into how we're to be uh, viewing our governing authorities in verses 13 through 17. It sounds very much like Romans 13, 1 through 7 and Titus 3, verse 1, where St. Paul tells us the same thing. Christians are to be willing to submit to temporal authorities for the Lord's sake. Because God-ordained authority has been established for us, and God upholds these offices. Our freedom in Christ is never a pretext for us to do evil. And it's out there in the civic community is where we disciples live as servants of God. Next, the apostle turns to servants and masters in verses 18 through 25. Christians are to submit to earthly masters even when this involves suffering, even unfair suffering. And as an example, he holds up before us Jesus' righteous suffering for us. Just before our text, in verse 18, he speaks directly to servants, literally house slaves, the domestic help. These people have very little status in the world. They were often mistreated by demanding masters. But Christian servants had an, a new life and a, a new identity and a new mission. They were to proclaim Jesus within their vocation. And they could do it by being the best, the most honorable, the most faithful servants to their masters, even if and even when they suffered unfairly for doing so. And so finally we come to our text. He's still talking to servant, servants, but the verses chosen for our lesson make it sound like this is a, a universal lesson to all of us who live in the world. He applies it to all of us. Verse 19 and 20 begins, This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it, if when you sin or are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. This, this being subject, this suffering unfair treatment. As the text continues, we'll see that there's a distinction made between suffering unjustly and suffering because one had actually sinned. But he says, this is a gracious thing when one suffers unjustly. And he wrote those words twice. How can it be a gracious thing? He says, there's no credit when one has brought such suffering upon himself because of bad conduct. House slaves had to experience all kinds of unfair treatment. But now they are to endure it for the sake of their new status as Christians. And that's the gracious thing. Do we Christians suffer unjustly today? Ask any child. Ask any teenager. The words we hear them say so often, it isn't fair. It isn't fair when a sibling gets more or better treatment than we get. It isn't fair when parents enforce uh, hours and, and curfews on, on kids or refuse to lend them the car for a, a night out. It isn't fair. It's not just the young, however. Ask anyone who's lost a job. It isn't fair. Ask anyone who's lost a loved one. It isn't fair. As we look around at the world today, it isn't fair who's catching and not catching the COVID-19 virus. How are we Christians to deal with life when it isn't fair? And again, the word is graciously. We are to deal with it in such a way that God might receive glory. Because, St. Peter reminds us in verses 21 through 23, for to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. For to this you were called. The call of every Christian includes a call to willingly suffer, especially for the sake of the gospel. And why? Because Christ suffered for you. Christ suffered willingly. He knew what was coming. He even foretold his suffering. But he also understood that this was his mission. This was why he had come to take to earth, to take upon the sins of the world, to suffer and die in our place. Yes, it was unjust. Read the account of Holy Week, the terrible injustices that were inflicted on Jesus. He was betrayed. He was denied. He faced all kinds of false accusations. He was mocked and humiliated and beaten and tortured and put to death. That isn't fair. But he suffered all of that for your sake. He suffered all of that, though it wasn't fair. He suffered for your sins and for mine. He suffered lovingly because God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. He sent his son, Jesus, for this very purpose. And now he leaves you, he leaves us, an example. But more than an example. It's an example that for all of our relationships, how are we to live as Christian spouses, Christian children, Christian employees, Christian friends, Christian neighbors, an example he holds out before us is one of sacrificing ourselves for the sake of others. And he even gave us his Holy Spirit to empower us to do this. This is a hard lesson for us today because it isn't politically correct. In our culture today, we demand our freedom, our privileges, our rights. We want and expect justice. Sometimes we live as if this earthly life is all there is. And when a Christian falls into this kind of thinking, we give a terrible, a faithless witness to our Lord, who gave up all of his rights in order to die in our place for us sinners. And so Peter reminds us in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. We are motivated by the gospel. Jesus died for us. Peter may have been recalling the words of Isaiah 53, words we heard just a few weeks ago where Isaiah prophesied, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And with his wounds, we are healed. The gospel, that Jesus suffered and died for us to give us new life, is the basis for us to submit to human authority. It's the motivation for us to endure unjust suffering, too. And then comes verse 25, which makes the application for Good Shepherd Sunday. Peter says, For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You were straying like sheep. Their former status before they became Christians it's another allusion to Isaiah 53, where Isaiah says, All we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. 
but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of our souls. Once we were lost and wandering sheep, but now we have returned. Now we've been found. We've been carried home by our good shepherd. Now we're under the leadership and the protection and the care of the shepherd and overseer so that no accusation of wrongdoing can be justly made against us who are disciples of Jesus. What a, a wonderful witness this provides to the world. We're being guided by our good shepherd who likewise suffered death to bring new life to his once wandering sheep. That's a great reminder for us on Good Shepherd Sunday, a reminder of who we are and whose we are and who we follow. We are sheep of our Good Shepherd. We are his. And he keeps us his sheep in the midst of an unfair world through all that we have to endure, all that we suffer, we know he has us in his care and he leads us where he, he, he is taking us home to the joy of his father's house. The Holy Gospel is from the Gospel according to St. John, verses 1 through 10. This is a familiar passage because... Every year on the fourth Sunday of Easter, we read part of John 10. Once again, we need to put this passage into its context. In John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. He spat on the ground, made some mud, anointed the man's eyes, and told him to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And he did, and he came back seeing. A miracle. But his neighbors didn't know what to make of this. So they took him to the Pharisees. These people must have recognized the Pharisees as spiritual leaders. At least the Pharisees claimed to be authorities on God and God's law and all things spiritual. Rather than rejoicing with the man, some of the Pharisees said, This man, Jesus, isn't from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Because Jesus had performed this miracle on the Sabbath, they denied that it even was a miracle. They further in interrogated the man, and then they called in his parents for their testimony, and in the end they concluded, saying to the man, you were born in utter sin. And then they cast him out. They excommunicated him. They accused Jesus of breaking the law and being a fraud. And so they used the law to keep the people under control. For them, it was all about power and control and fear and intimidation. It was all about the law, including their man-made laws, not God's law. Our text then, John 10, is a beautiful image of the sheep and the good shepherd a passage in which we find so much comfort, but it was Jesus' response to the Pharisees' blindness and their arrogance and their abuse of the people. He's saying to them, you are horrible leaders, unworthy to be the people's leaders or the people of God's leaders. John 10, verses 1 through 10 begins, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they'll flee from him, for they don't know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. 
If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. This image of the sheep and the shepherd is a familiar Old Testament image describing the nature of the relationship between God and his people. And Jesus used this familiar image to reveal to them the truth of who he really is. The Pharisees would surely be familiar with passages like the 23rd Psalm, which begins, the Lord is my shepherd, or Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. During Advent, we heard the words of Isaiah 40, verse 11, where Isaiah says, Behold your God. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. They'd also likely be familiar with God's prophecy against the faithless leaders of Israel in Ezekiel 34. The Lord declared, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. Shouldn't shepherds take care of the flock? I'm against the shepherds and I will hold them accountable for my flock. But then he promised, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. I will shepherd the flock with justice. In John 10, Jesus declared the fulfillment of all of those great Old Testament passages. And in this section, he used two figures of speech. He said, I am the door or the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. He revealed to them that he is the Lord. He is the great I am. He did so by setting the scene. Again, a scene they'd be familiar with. It was taking place all around them, throughout the hillsides around Jerusalem, out in the countrysides. He describes a sheepfold, a sheep pen. This would be a large stone and walled enclosure. Oftentimes at night, the shepherds would lead their flocks out of the hillsides down into these sheep pens for protection. And some of them were large enough that they could accommodate several flocks who would be commingled together within the safety of this large sheep pen. There was always a gate or a door. There was only one entrance in and out. Sometimes the shepherds themselves would lie down across the entrance to make sure that none of the sheep would escape. Sometimes there was a, a gatekeeper, a watchman. He would give access to authorized personnel only, to the true shepherds. But he would also guard against the thieves and the robbers who would try to crawl in over the walls. They were always up to no good. They were rustlers and butchers. In the old westerns, we know what, uh, what happened to the rustlers who, who, who stole their neighbor's sheep. This was a, a, a grave charge against these people. And there was a shepherd who would arrive in the morning, call out his sheep, and his sheep knew his voice, even though they might have been commingled. The shepherd's whole life was wrapped up in those sheep. They were his purpose for, li for living. His mission was to take care of them. He also loved them. He was willing to die for them. He would protect them with his life. And so every morning he called out to them, sometimes by name. And he led them out to the pastures and the streams where they, they would feed and drink and be richly blessed. The sheep would recognize the shepherd's voice. And like little puppies, they'd follow their shepherd, but they'd always run away from strangers. It was simple enough. But verse 6 says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them 
But the Pharisees didn't understand what he was saying to them. Oh, they understood the imagery, but they didn't want to understand what Jesus meant. And so he explained it to them, beginning in verse 7. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am another of those great I am sayings recorded for us in the Gospel of John. I am the Lord and I am the door for the sheep. The sheep, of course, are God's people. As the door, Jesus is the only way in, the only access to the safety of the sheep pen, the only way to be saved. I am the door, the only way out to green pastures and still waters, the only way to life with God. They understood at that point the claim that Jesus was making. He then went on to say the thieves and robbers, or the Pharisees maybe understood at that point that he was talking to them. They were the strangers. People shouldn't listen to them. They were thieves who steal and kill and destroy God's people. They took what wasn't theirs. Power, prestige, they were killing and destroying with their false teaching, their man-made rules and regulations. They were leading people away from the truth, away from God's plan of salvation, away from the Good Shepherd. Jesus concluded by saying, I came that they, the sheep, may have life and have it abundantly. Life now in overflowing abundance and eternal life with God. The promise of life is the basic promise throughout all of John's gospel. It's given to all those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God. John makes that point in the beautiful prologue, John 1 verse 4, where he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. You're familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. It continues, but if you go on to um, John 20, verse 31, for example, John claims, These things are written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus came that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's what it means to be Easter people. Easter people live life to the fullest. It's a rich life, an overflowing life, and yes, it is eternal life that begins not someday in the future, by and by, but life that begins for us right now, life that begins in the moment of baptism, life in that moment when the Spirit leads us to Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Now, so often people in the world around us have the impression that Christianity requires that we give up something, that we miss out on something, that we need to be unhappy in order to be a Christian, but someday it's all going to be worth it by and by. That's not Christianity at all. Like those first Christians, Jesus gives us life, joyful, generous, sharing good news and all good things. Lest they miss the point, Jesus further revealed it to them in the words that come right after our, our text in verses 11 through 16. He said, I am the good shepherd. Don't you get it yet? I am the good shepherd. I am the Lord who promised 
through the prophet Isaiah to come and love my people and care for my people. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. On this Good Shepherd Sunday, we turn our attention to our Good Shepherd, who laid down his life for us and took it up again so that we might have life, that we might have it abundantly. The psalm for this day is, of course, the 23rd Psalm. And we make it today our confession. I like to read this psalm as, as perhaps David intended it. You know, David had been a shepherd boy. He, he understood what a shepherd was. He knew the, the protection that he had to provide. He knew how he had to care for his sheep and provide them with all that they need. David fought lions and bears in order to protect his sheep. He laid down his life for the sheep. But as he wrote the words of the 23rd Psalm, he flipped it over and he viewed his life as one of the sheep. And you can almost sense the, the pride, the confidence that he has as, as he proclaims gladly, the Lord is my shepherd. You know the Psalm, you're familiar with it, but, but read it with me once again if, if you've got it before you. If not, you probably know it by heart. But say it with confidence as, as your confession of faith on this Good Shepherd Sunday. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just as confidently as, as David made the claim, the Lord is my shepherd, he ends with the same kind of confidence. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I'm an Easter person. I have celebrated our Lord's resurrection. I know the joy of living now and living forever, living abundantly in my risen Savior, Jesus. May the Lord richly bless you and keep you throughout this week and in the days to come. God, we pray, be with your people during this week. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, our Good Shepherd. Help us to follow him in, in the ways that he would lead us. Sometimes that's dark valleys. Sometimes the way is, is dangerous. In these times of, of COVID-19, the ways are uncertain and we sense that there is an enemy lurking out there ready to attack us. Help us to remember that you also lead us into the green pastures. Beside the still waters, you provide for us every day of our lives. Help us to remember that you have a destination in mind for us. That beyond the, the darkness of the valley of the shadow, there remains a, a table prepared for us in your presence. 
that goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our lives, and that indeed we will dwell in your house forever. Help us to live this week as Easter people. We pray these and all things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.